Hey, Mike. Hey, Michelle. How's it going? Wonderful. How's it going with you? It's going okay. Okay, good. How did you like 406 Camp Elegance from Fargo? It's funny you ask, Mike. Um, I, I, I loved the episode, but I'm going to say that I wonder if other people feel like this, like the first time they watch it. The first time when I watch these episodes, and I'm sure many people only watch it once, but the first time I watch each episode, it feels so scattered to me. It's the second watching that sucks me in and makes me lose myself. There is so much to catch, and it's really difficult for me to catch it all, to really catch any of it. The first time the first time I watch it, I come out of it feeling like, wait, what? And then when I go back and watch it again, it's just rich. In a way, that's really too bad, because most people just probably watch it one time. Yeah, hey, Michelle, are you using the right microphone setting? Let me double check. Nope. Sorry, it should be better now. Okay. Uh, yeah, so this is a short episode. It went by really fast. In addition to being short chronologically, it just I thought it was really good, and that's why I thought it went by fast. But right. I liked it. I thought it was a beautiful... You know, Story of America has kind of become the theme of this whole season. And I like the mini saga of Antoon in the middle there about the Italian guy. You know, it was... it. It's it's funny that, that you are saying that because it's so... I thought it was so sad. It was, it was a sad episode. There was nothing happy in this episode. Well, that's got nothing to do with being good or excellent or poor to me. It's... I just no. think great episode. Sure. I mean I, I agree with that. But I'm just saying it was it was um I don't know if you watched it twice, right? I watched it one point three times. Okay. Well the the second time I watched it, it was like I could feel these emotions because I guess I wasn't just like concentrating on the story in order to podcast it. And feeling these emotions in it were really deep. And they and it started from the very beginning. What were your emotions? Well, like, Ethel Rita, she gets off that bus, right? And it's the same thing that we've seen Orietta do. And no time at all has passed. It's the evening of the day that we ended with. It's still her birthday. It's dark outside. And she doesn't want to walk into her own house. She looks, like, hesitant or depressed or whatever. And she gets to the door, and it's like she has to put on this brave face to walk in the door. And I really felt that. I mean, I wonder how many times, you know, you feel that. Like, you have to go into this situation, and you don't want to let your emotions be known or you don't want to bring other people down or whatever. And so you, like, put on this brave face, and it... All of this I got just from this first like 30 seconds, maybe minute of this episode. And it was really deep. You know, you can see her like pause at the door and kind of square her her young shoulders, you know, and then she changes like the expression on her face and then she walks in the house. And then in the house it's messed up, right? The cake's there, but it's like filled in maybe with frosting or something um, where... Debrell had to cut a piece for zero a little bit earlier, and and it's very obvious. There's like this dip in the cake, so the cake's off. You know, Ethel Rita's off. The cake is a little off. Debrell and 
Thurman are sitting there real solemnly. And then she comes in, they tell her happy birthday, and everyone's like faking this normalcy and and happiness as they hug. And then when they're hugging, you see Ethel Rita's face on one side, and she has this kind of horror blank look on her face, like, I just have to get through this, kind of. And her parents' faces are facing the other way as they hug, and they are miserable. And it's this very slow, eerie, happy birthday being sung by them in the background. And then they pan out, and we see the Iceman standing behind her. Snowman Snowman looked like he was having a good time. Yeah, well, he was going to get cake. And I started thinking, like, you know, the second watching, I'm making a note, maybe everyone is dead. Maybe we're just seeing, like, ghosts of people, like in the sixth sense. Maybe they're dead and they don't know they're dead, because this is weird stuff. Something feels really off. Well, they just had to hand their business over to Loy. That's creeping them out. Ethel Rita senses what's going on, if not knows what's going on. She's got the weight of knowing what's going on with their nurse neighbor, you know, sort of Damocles hanging over her. So she's worried about shit, too. Well, not only I don't that, think they're ghosts. I think they're just in... worried. I don't really either, but I'm just saying. It wouldn't even surprise me at this point. Um, but she just had to turn in her aunt, Zelmar. She just had to turn him in to uh, Daffy. Well, Remember, there you she go. just left school. I mean, it's like all this horror. She doesn't know what's going on at home. They don't know what's going on with her at school. And, you know, everybody's like putting on this brave face. And but, but the cake was still beautiful. So we have that. I don't all know, right. I well, you just took care deep. of the whole first scene. And dark. Yeah, but that uh, just just as a description to how it felt, you know, and how deep everything felt in this. You brought up Antoon, and I thought that was really deep. And um, we'll get to some of that when we get there. But that was another really deep episode. Wef, we go into Wef's apartment next, you know. And, man, I just feel really bad for this guy. You know he can't. What good can happen with him? He knows a lot, and people are trying to double, double, triple cross with him, so Loy's going to try to use him. You know, who knows what the Fadas have left to use with him. But he know, and Deffy, you know, knows a lot about him now more than he did. I'm really pulling for Wef. He's he's sad. Wef is a, Wef is an, has become an, he looked like a dingus in the very first few episodes, but he's become an unusually impossible important cog in this whole story now yeah the more we hear about his story the more you want him to be okay he's like this victim of circumstance and really bad luck that's that's brought this affliction on him and and he just keeps it just continues to be put upon him and it's pretty sad he's rhythmic rhythmic say the word rhythmically there you go. Thank you. Knocking on his own door before he goes in, before he enters his own house. And zipping and then, his own zipper. Man, wasn't that the worst? I said, that's the saddest thing. It was so sad. Well, Webb's he important had, because he has access to everything. He has access to the Fadas, the, the cannons, and the police, 
And he's really become pretty important in this whole thing. He can walk into any of those factions and belong for even, you know, even if it's temporarily. So I think he's going to play a big part in how this thing unwinds. I just hope he comes out of it okay, because he's become like this sad character to me that I feel a whole lot of empathy toward because they told us so much of his story. He even goes like to the Hummel and moves. It's the tiny, just a millimeter as he walks in. And it's just everything about him. And that that's why he was so good at the job, the, the getting rid of the mines job, because he is this attention to detail, they said. And he has it, and now he just has it with all this other stuff piled on top of it. And it's just its just so sad. And he has to unzip and zip his zipper. I mean, that's horrible. It's just so sad. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Michelle, as do you think he, it's sad? In his, as his character. Don't be ugly. And so then one of the cannon guys jumps out from behind the shower curtain, covers his head in plastic, and just as he's about to go out, Lloyd stabs a hole in the mouth where he's sucking in the stuff and he's able to breathe again. And Lloyd's kind of, hey, it's okay. You know, I've had a bad day too. But he's just Yeah, that was there. a double tribute. The shower curtain was a double tribute first to Fargo the movie and also from No Country for Old Men when they um, strangled the sheriff, when Anton Chigurh strangled the sheriff. He had that weird, exaggerated look on his face and the, and the sheriff was kicking his feet like Webb right. was. Two, they got a two-for-one tribute there. It was horrifying, but oh, it was kind of it was kind of funny to see the tribute. I thought, well, Loy owns him now. Loy is starting to own people. He's starting to own different things that he once had as opponents. He's now like making them his invisible soldiers. Maybe maybe Wef won't be as invisible as the women, but he's going to be a soldier now for Loy. Is he, though? Because, I mean, what is he really, you know? Well, I mean, he has, he's kind of like working both sides. He has, ac- it, he has access to all those things. Well, who knows how he's going to turn out? We don't know that answer. But he does have a lot of access, which is pretty important in this story, I think. Yeah, he has a lot of access. But in this situation, it seems like it's almost just like more invitation to trauma, to being killed. Or... Well, he's not deciding to do these things. He's being forced. He's, you know, he's trapped. His his hole is getting deeper and deeper. Well, right, but that's not going to change anybody's mind to, you know, kill him. Even if it's not his fault. But yeah, Lloyd tells him he owns him and he's going to help him win the war. And then they tell him they'll be in touch and they leave. And then as they're leaving, Deffy's sitting in his car watching the cannons exit. And then we have the screen go to Fargo, the Fargo letters, and that's how we end that. So with all of Weff's access, none of his uh, employers, the Cannons, the Fadas, the police, sheriff department, none of them want to help him. Like, you're kind of right. They would all just sacrifice him for the heck of it just to get what they three, the three of them each want as their own separate faction. So he has no home. And he has no alliance or allegiance, really. He has no backup. I mean, Duffy's supposed to be a lawman, and he knows that he's, you know, he's working for the Italians. And here the black gang comes in. You know, he could have rushed in there and tried to save him if he really cared about him. But he was just observing. Well, he's just observing at this point. 
But I, I know, but he, he could have been observing Weff's demise. True. And he still sat and observed. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe he thinks he's playing both sides. I don't know. I don't know what Deffy well, thinks. Well, of course he does. Now he knows. So, then we go to uh, Gatano, and he is dancing to the opera music with waving the knife and then stabbing the dress mannequin. And it's like his dance is like death. or It's so dark. And then outside we see Zelmar and Swanee coming inside. Like, I guess like somebody called hookers or something because they're kind of dressed hookery. And then we hear a ruckus downstairs and Paolo goes to see what's going on. Then you hear gunfire and Gatano hears footsteps coming to the door. So he fires through the door and it's Paolo he's killed. He's emptied his gun into him. And then he can't get reloaded. And I thought that was a little unbelievable for somebody like Gatano, just to tell you the truth. Well, Gatano's a paper lion. I think we might have talked about this before. Somebody else called a paper lion. Maybe it was Josto. But yeah, Gaetano's got the the nervous fingers of oh, I gotta reload these bullets, and every every bullet I put in gives me one sixth more advantage, and if I only get two or three in, I only have two or three shots. So, and he's nervous. He was like Hank on Breaking Bad when he had to put that one bullet with his shaking, bloody fingers in the gun. <laughs> right. And you could just imagine trying to do that under that kind of pressure. It would be really hard to do. But Gaetano's scared. Gaetano is a paper. He's a fake lion you know he's he's tough when he's facing pipsqueaks but when he's facing real adversaries he's kind of a weasel he's kind of a, a he's kind of afraid why do you think that i don't get that because he's a coward he's a bully he's just a big coward he's i a, see him being a bully but i don't see the coward part you didn't see the fear in his eyes with he didn't storm down there with his knife he was afraid and nervous and that's why he had a hard time loading his gun well, that's true, and he did let Paolo go down there and handle that. Yeah, so I he's, guess he's yeah, a, he's a coward. But he just like he stands up to the cannons. He doesn't seem cowardly at all. He just he invites. In this very next scene, we see him tied up, and Lloyd's talking to him about Sugar Ray. And one of the problems with being the winner is that everyone wants to take the title from you. And then he tells him that out of all the mistakes he's made, Doctor Senator is the one that got him killed. And Gatano looks at him and starts, like, belly laughing. He's tied up. He has a chain around his neck, and he's belly laughing at Loy. And so then do you the think boxer... that was the end of Gaetano? No, it's not yet. We know it's not yet. But he was brave there, or stupid. The cannon boxer guy comes up. I don't know. I don't remember his name, but he has been wrapping his hands the whole time. And he goes over. Loy, like, dings a bell. This, Wait, remind um, me why we don't know that's the end of Gaetano. I don't remember. Because we see him later. Where? Uh, he's tied up when uh, Weff goes to see Loy. Okay, but that could have been an hour later. Well, they're not still in there. I, I don't know how much later it is, but this, I mean, this is not the end of him. Okay, let me rephrase him. my question. Do you think Gaetano ever gets up from that chair with the chain around his neck, or do you think he dies there? Um, I think that Louis says he's not going to kill Gaetano. He says this to Weff. He's not going to kill Gaetano until he gets his son back. Yeah, but he also and tells Gaetano, this is why you have, this is why you're dead. 
Sprite, but he tells Weff that he's got to get his son back, and then he's going to kill that guy, and then they're going to take over, is what he says. Well, so, so all of that could be true. My but we premise, know he's not going to get his son back. My premise that Gaetano never leaves that room could be true, and he could kill him after he gets his son back, and thinking that, and then never get him back and then kill him. And it could work for Weff. I mean, he wants Weff. He wants to leverage over Weff. You know, Weff wants to still perform for the Italians, and Gaetano's one of them, so he still has a little bit of motivation to try to try to save Gaetano. I think Weff's just trying to save himself. I don't think Weff wants to be caught up in the Fadas or the Cannons or any of them. I think Weff's just trying to survive, and I don't think he owes any allegiance to Gaetano. I think what whatever he ends up doing is not going to be for that reason, but that's just my take on it. Well, I think Lloyd's plan, though, is like, hey, if you, if you, unless you do this, I'm just going to kill Gaetano. Whatever he's going to do anyway, he makes Weff think that. You know, it's better for Weff if he saves Gaetano. Somehow he tells the Fadas and they save him, or he negotiates something or does something and gets Gaetano out of that. That looks better to the Italians for him. Well, I guess, unless the Italians are the ones that, or or the um, cannons are the ones that win. If they end up really taking over, it's not going to be better. Of course, but he's going to walk right back into the den of the Fadas now. So he needs, you know, he needs motivation. And Lloyd's, Lloyd's leveraging him. Okay, then we get to see Orietta, and she goes in to see Dr. Harvard, and they discuss the groaning gout patient that you can hear all the way down the hall. And then Dr. Harvard tells her about the letter he received about her. Well, she also teases him about the macaroons again. Yeah, she brings those up. Yeah, she's still just like, not really, it's not flirty, but what would you call it? Just attentive? Yeah, I called it, like, flirty, yeah, flirty, teasy. Okay, but now, Ethel Rita just wrote this letter the night before. So this is, is all the, you know, these last two or three episodes, Michelle, have all happened over only like two or three days. Yeah, no, that just seems like a really quick time for Ethel Rita to have written the letter, gotten it to the hospital, this doctor to have gotten it, read it, and called Orietta in there. It's happening really, really quick. It could have happened from a morning to an afternoon, though. Like she, she wrote it at night, delivered it in the next morning, and there they are. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it just seems like it's happening really fast. And then he asked her about attending the funerals of the patients, and, well, it's the Christian thing to do. And he asked her if she retains keepsakes, and she says that that's ridiculous, and the uh, anonymous letter is a cowardly act of a, cow- of a coward, and then she gets mad at him, because he says women are she-cats, and men have no time to squabble like that. He's a horrible human being. And then he says, okay, but I'm going to have to show this to HR, and she says, no, you don't. It's my reputation. And then he gets convinced that it's just jealousy because of her elevated position at this hospital. And then as she leaves the room, he tells her no more funerals. Yeah, I think that's powerful to Orietta. It's weird how they shoot her, too. She's always at some weird quirky angle and her face. Her mouth is always like wrenched into some quirky, smirky. It's not symmetrical. And they shoot her. They make her tilted. 
And then, of course, the way she walks is all stilted and, you know, super fast, tiny little steps. They make her look really quirky right. in this show with every every way that they can. You know, her face, the way she walks, the way they, she sits when they shoot her and the camera angles. But um, I thought somehow she knew that handwriting. She saw it and it kind of clicked for her. Hmm. That's interesting. And I don't know if that that means she found the diary or what, but I think maybe maybe it was just, oh, that's a girl. I can see that's a girl's writing, and I bet that damn little bitch next door. I don't know, but that's smart about the diary. That's smart, because whether she's done that yet or not, she may do that. She may know, know, but it seems like she'd be more angry if she found the diary than she is. Like, all she's concerned about now is... Dr. Harvard and his accusations to to her. Well, I would think they would show us of her finding the diary, too, because I want to see, you know? I think the ceremony is important, though. Like, no more funerals. Like, she's like, ah, oh, shit. Like, that, that's, that funeral part might be part of her demonic ceremony when she sends somebody off. She needs to, you know put the stamp on it or something i don't know why but i think somehow that's important yeah i think so too i think the keepsake i think everything is important the ritual of whatever she's doing uh, or the, or at least the aftermath of the ritual of what she's or the aftermath maybe is the ritual of what she's doing so michelle we should catch up on some of the stuff we talked about after that episode where she was in the closet and the cats came in and the, something scared her and she left in a hurry uh-huh. I think we figured out that she had that ring. She's just tr- kind of trying on that ring, and I think she picked the ring out because it was on top of all the other trinkets. Right. Maybe for no other simple reason than that. And then she leaves with it just only because she's rushed and hurried, and she forgets she has it on her finger. She's not trying to steal it, I don't think. Well, then why did she take the obituary? I don't know. She was, I mean, she I was... I don't think she cared. I think there's something about her that's a little defiant okay i'm trying to tell you what i think i think she did it in a rush just like she rushed and left her diary she left in a real hurry and she had that ring on her finger she didn't think to take it off and she probably got home and was like oh shit here's you know she can't go back now or she doesn't want to go back or maybe she will try later but i don't think she purposely took that ring and I, i don't even remember her taking the diary or the the newspaper did she yeah, she was reading it in her bed. Okay. While she was looking at the ring. So, anyway. I don't know. You you might be right about it. I don't know. Or she might have just... I don't know. There's something a little defiant about her. There's something a little, I'm going to, you know, this is the right thing and it's what I'm going to do. Maybe she needed evidence for whatever she may or may not. I don't know. Well, um, I do know, and I told you what I know. Well, thank you. That's good. Um, yeah, and you've been right about much more than I have on this one, which I don't like at all. But Okay, then we see the snowy overhead of cars driving through um, down the road, winding down the road. And then we see Joe Bulow out of New York uh, coming in with Ebal to see Josto. And Josto's asking if New York is with him, meaning with him to be the boss. He wants New York's blessing to be the boss. Ebal is really slow and annoyed with his answer. He says there are two conditions, but he really, he's like, he is not happy 
with having to do any of this. And the first condition is they have two weeks to fix the ordeal with the cannons. And then before he gets to the second one, Calamita comes up and interrupts, interrupts him, telling Josto that the cannons took Gatano. And they killed Paulo, which isn't true. That's not what happened. And then we see Josto looking off. He's like, they, they, they took Gatano? And then you can tell he's happy about it, right? And then he looks back and he's all solemn. And Calamita says, we have to go, you know, do something. And he says, they took him for the doctor. And this is where Ebal goes, what? You know, and he finds out here about Dr. Senator and what they did. And he asked Josto if Josto ordered this. And Josto says, no, I didn't order it, but it was ordered. So it doesn't matter. It was ordered and that's, you know, and I'm handling it. Yeah, this and, works out great for Josto until he learns the second condition. Right. He, he he gets rid of Gaetano. New York's going to help him. He's going to be he's going to have no opposition to being the leader of the gang. He's going to have a bunch of army soldiers come down from New York, and he's going to wipe out Loy's crew, and everything's all good. By the way, we've met Joe Bulo before. He was in season two in Fargo. Oh, really? Yeah, he was he was connected to Mike Milligan, so. 20 years later, I think season two is in the 70s, and this is the 50s or 50s, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've seen Joe Bulo before. That's so cool how they do that. I didn't know that. But yeah, then we find out number two, and that's he has to make things right with his brother. So it's kind of like a wall-wall moment, because how can he do that if... With, Gitano's just a mess, how how could you make things right with him? You can't. And Justo is not going to be anything more than... He, I put in my notes, he's a little boy playing a man's game. His chair's too big for him. He's wearing like a bib, eating his spaghetti. He's all petulant and whiny and complainy about stuff. He's all smarmy and, you know, he's not like a strong, quiet, powerful leader. He's like a little adolescent. Right, and he's and he's short and you know he's short in stature. He just looks like a little kid, and he acts like a little kid. Yeah, I agree. He's not a good leader, so it's definitely not gonna. I don't think gonna work out. I think they're showing us it's not gonna work out with the Fadas, right? And isn't this kind of the story of the cannons taking over? Because we've seen, like, they kind of set us up for this at the beginning. We started out with the Hebrews, and then the Irish came and took over from them. And I think we might just be seeing the takeover, right? Well, they all get taken over eventually. Well, then we go to Loy, and he's sitting in his office, but he's thinking back on a conversation with Dr. Senator, and that was kind of sad. Dr. Senator was saying that... Um, he missed most that what he missed most was being young and then loy was saying that he was he had to get his boy back and that he was talking about satchel not uh lemuel back out of jail so this conversation had just happened like a day or two before and dr senator was saying he would talk to ibal but if he rescinds satchel now it's war and so Michelle, when I said when I said I watched this 1.3 times, the point three is that I went back. I listen to some other podcasts and I read, you know, some Reddit and other article re- reviews and stuff. 
And a lot of people didn't like this episode because they were nitpicky about a few things. And so I would I went back and watched those few things. Okay. And, and even after watching them, it still didn't really bother me. But um, one of the things that they didn't like was Loy putting Weff in charge of getting Satchel back. Like, you march in there, you get him back. And I'll be here waiting for you. Like that, he's putting like an idiot in charge of getting his son back. He's going to walk into this other army and hopefully come back with his most precious thing. So I watched that, and I, you know, I don't really mind it. I, all these little complaints other people had, I didn't really mind. Um, one other one they had was when Gaetano got snuck up upon by the women that they opened the window and he didn't notice, and it's a winter day and they should have noticed like cold air rushing in, and he didn't turn around and. Um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was, I guess, but he was trying to load a gun. He just shot in Paulo, so I can give him some grace on that. Anyway, that was my 1.3 explanation. Okay. Um, I would not have put Weff in charge of getting my little 10-year-old son out of an Italian army, gang, on mafia army, though. Yeah, but it's just like you said about him. He he's the only one with access. Also, why did why did the it why did the uh, cannon send the two women to get Gaetano and not give have any backup ready? Well, remember when they went and got Zelmar and Swanee? They said they did it because they needed soldiers. Right, but and... they could have been hidden around the corner in a car with a car full of dudes. Well, I mean, and we don't know if that happened, but they just couldn't go in, maybe. Well, I know that, Michelle. Obviously, they snuck in, but why not have a, a team of uh, cannons um, ready, you know? They didn't. They had to figure out how to drag his fat ass down the stairs with a, with a flying carpet. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's, that's some of the nitpicky stuff that people okay, are saying. Okay, plausible deniability then. They didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't even like a black people there. Well, who so are they going to be, be plausible? Who are they going to deny activity to? I don't know. If somebody saw somebody coming in, it w- wouldn't be the cannons. They wouldn't be identifiable. I know, but I who know. do they have to be responsible to? Who are, who are they worried about? Like I'm saying, if the Thottas came over and the neighbors had seen, (laughs) you know, the cannons coming in, I'm just saying, you know, they'd say, well, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any um, culpability. I don't think they have anybody that they worry about. I think they worry about getting killed directly by the other party. I don't think they worry about the neighbors seeing them too much. Well, you're, you're right too, because... They know where he's at anyway. They know Loy has him. So, yeah, you're right. But Weff is brought to Loy, and he sees Gatano like, all beat up. And Loy says that Weff has to get his boy back. This is what we were just talking about. And then he's going to kill Gatano and take over the town. But first he has to get Satchel back. And this is where Weff is like super stressed and he's pacing back and forth when they kick him out of this room. And and um, he heads out singing the one little, two little, three little Indians. Do we know anything about why he's singing that song? Mm, I don't know. I know it's part of his thing. He's done it the whole time. 
but something about that, and I don't know what that is, but I think it's something. I think we may hear something about it because there's later on I'll point out something if it's I remember. It's orderly. Right. It's sequential. One, two, three. And maybe it calms him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then he pulls up in front of the Fada Pretty house. impressed with that, I th- thought, huh, Michelle? Well, it's sequential. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is... As he goes into the Fada house, it's still heavily guarded. He's still singing. He's doing that finger tap thing. He goes inside. He sees Satchel sitting beside the Christmas tree reading. Rabbi's looking at him like he's about to pounce on Wef. And then in the background, I don't know if you noticed or not, but we hear ten little Indian boys. And we've never heard the end of that before. And it's like said in like a different tone or something. So I don't know if that's like, you know, the end. I, I don't know. I think it has something to do with something that it made it to the end because he's not even saying it. It's like being said, like in his head maybe or something. But Calamity comes in and says Josto wants him and they walk out and he's telling them that it's war and they have Gatano and they put him in the back seat of a car and they drive off. So he doesn't get Satchel. Yeah, that's another little nitpicky thing. You don't put the guy that you're trying to keep an eye on in the back seat while two, the two of you ride in the front. Well, there's no uh, doors back there. Yeah, that's but what, what if I he's got a gun? Pop, pop, they're both dead. He goes right back and gets the kid, you know. Well, true. I don't think they're worried about him, though. Well, obviously they're not. That's the That's the problem. That's the error in the story. Anyway, I got over all this stuff, but it is kind of true that you know, like in The Godfather, they take a guy out to be killed. He sits in the passenger seat. The assassin sits in the back seat. Yeah. Weff's probably armed. He's an officer. So, I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't I mean, really I guess matter, that makes but... sense. I don't know. Okay, then we go to Josto, and he's holding the hairbrush. What's that all about? He's, like, poking through a hairbrush. A more little boy stuff. He's in that big giant chair, spinning around, <laughs> slapping a hairbrush left and right. You know, it's stupid. Yeah, he like smacks his leg with a hairbrush or something. Like a little kid punching himself in the thigh, like, damn it. You know, it's just childish. Well, Ibal comes in saying that at three, they're going to make a trade for Gatano. It's what New York wants. And Josto says Gatano's a tornado and you shouldn't run after a tornado. And then here we hear the... And it's so funny at this point because you know when Weff's coming, this rhythmic knocking on the door. And they tell him to give Daffy the slip because it's all hands on deck now because of what's going on. The cannons have Gatano and Weff has to find out where. Well, Weff knows where. He just saw him in there. And he didn't tell them. So that's something. Ibal says there's no time to let Wef find out because they have to meet at three. And then Calamita says Gatano would rather die than trade, but Ibal says it's what New York wants. Josto gives Wef until 2.30 to find Gatano, which is, you know, they're like, are you kidding? And then Josto turns to Calamita and he says, whose side are you on? You're always following others' orders. And then he tells Ibal to get Calamita out of there and reminds and remind him how loyalty works and send in Antoon. So what about that? What does that mean? 
Well, first of all, I still think it's funnier if we call them by their autocorrect names, Michelle. eBay violence and constant calamity. <laughs> but yeah, Josto asked constant calamity what side he's on. Um, and then, you know, I could, you know, I wrote it down again. He's childish, but he's still dangerous. Josto's still dangerous. So he can still direct these guys that have more muscle than him. And, he, you know, he's still cut pull. He's got enough pull to be dangerous still. Well, yeah, I mean, really and truly, what's more dangerous? Uh, an, an adult, a, a thinking adult or a child that doesn't always think things through? Well, a Michael Corleone is way more dangerous than a f weak, simpering f soldier who's trying to be a tough guy. Yeah, but, but I'm just—I guess erratic. I'm just saying Josto's still, even though he's childish, he's still dangerous enough to be important to the story. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, the next thing he puts in motion with Antoon is pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, it really is. So we go to the split screen with Loy and Josto, and we see them each like thinking Lloyd's still in his office and Josto is at his uh, lamp that's in there. And then we go back to them and Antoon comes in and Josto tells him to go to the house, send Rabbi here and take care of the boy. And Antoon's like, what? And he tries to talk some sense into him. He doesn't want to do it. But here Josto says they're going to do it, but they're going to blame it on Calamita, Right. Isn't that what he was insinuating? Yeah, because he gets rid of a Gaetano and, and Constant Calamity. He's golden. He's got all his side, you know, remaining. Right. That's pretty evil, though. That's what I mean. He's he's a little danger. He's a little uh, childish punk, but he's dangerous still. Very. Yeah. That's there's something about that. You know, doing something and blaming it on somebody else. That's seems a little beyond. So, back at the Fada house, Antoon's wife is talking to Rabbi, asking him to speak to Josto positively about Antoon. And Antoon walks in and tells Rabbi that he's wanted back at the club, just him, not Satchel. They said it specifically. And then Rabbi, you know, starts to tell Satchel, if I don't come back, and Satchel interrupts him, he gets it, you're dead or you're in jail. But he tells him that to, to go up to the room. But Satchel wants to finish watching a show, so he stays downstairs. And Antoon tells his wife that he's working, and he tells Satchel he has to go with him. And she knows exactly what's going to go on. Yeah. And she's, like, all distraught. She crosses herself. Yeah, why wasn't Rabbi more concerned here with the separation from Satchel? Well, he's been separated from him before. Remember when Calamita came in and got him? You yeah, know, I know, I mean, but it's been all dialed up to this point. It seems like he should be really dialed into like, okay, this thing, like he's not going to let him go home anyway because he knows the war's about to break out. I guess, I guess it's explainable. I mean, like I said, I really like this episode. I'm not letting the nitpicky stuff get to me, but that is another kind of mysterious, unexplained. He was very calm about leaving Satchel behind. I At guess least you on the think surface. That leaving her there with Antoon's wife, I mean, how safe can you leave somebody, you know? Well, he's in the enemy den. Any soldier, Antoon's wife's not going to protect him from anything. That's, you're, you're right. It's just, I don't know. 
Okay, then we go to Orietta Mayflower, and she's sitting with the gout patient again, playing the conversation with Dr. Harvard over and over in her mind, and then she beats her head against the wall one good time. She looks creepy to me in this whole episode. Everything about her is like you said, the angles and the weirdness. Do you think she's human still? I well, I mean she's in a human form, but I always thought she was some sort of more powerful powerful supernatural or paranormal I think on the evil side of things, but yeah, she's got some sort of weird power. I know the story is not specifically about her, but I've really missed her the last couple episodes. The first four, they gave her a whole lot of playtime, and these last two, they haven't given her as much. And I, her character's super interesting to me. Well, there's all these corollaries to The Wizard of Oz that they kind of hinted at, and everybody in the world's like writing about and trying to figure out how it relates to The Wizard of Oz. Like, she could be a witch of some kind. You know, she's got all these elixirs and you know secret potions and stuff but um the witches in the wizard of oz aren't very prominent they only show up at certain times you know the, most of the stories about the travel that dorothy takes right and the wizard and the and the quest to get back home but um i don't know as she's in it enough for me you know okay i just i've missed her i've missed her her storyline as much over the last couple of time, a couple of episodes, but I mean, there's only so much time I know. But Rabbi pulls up to Josto outside the warehouse, and he tells him to go see Ebal upstairs. The kid is done, so Josto has no idea that Rabbi is not going to be okay with that. So Rabbi's really done a good job in convincing Josto that he is still his soldier. He's I done think. a good job where Josto's really blind to the chess game of like seeing what's pretty obvious that they spend all that time together. Um, they're similar in that they're both, you know, expelled children from their families and they have that common thread. Josto's blindness to Rabbi's affection for Satchel is really a big weakness. Well, I agree, and everybody else is too. It's like nobody sees this or would even put it together. Yeah, but Michelle, especially Josto as the leader, he's he's spilling his chips to somebody who the kid is done. I'm wait a minute. I care about this kid. He doesn't even know what he's telling. It's it's a very strong crack in Josto's you know skills. Yeah, I agree, and Josto's the one who needs to know. But he gets in the car, and he drives off, and Rabbi stands there for a moment, and he's thinking back to these moments with Satchel, and it's like he's making his choice there. I mean, not that there ever really was a choice, I don't think, and he takes off. He's going back to Satchel. We see him running back into the house, and he's yelling at Antoon's wife, where's the kid? And then somebody comes in there to help her, like to defend her, and he shoots them. And then we flash back and forth to Antoon driving Satchel to Camp Elegance Relocation Center, which is where we get the title of this episode. And that's where he was. And he tells them the story. Satchel gets out of the car, and they're walking together. He's telling the story about cooking his own belt because he had already eaten his shoes. And that they shipped a corpse over, a skeleton, 
and it was food that brought him back in this land of plenty. And he says he took a blood oath and carved his name on a stone, and he shows Satchel the stone with his name on it, and it's down in this ruin, and Satchel has to go down there, and he's tracing his name with his finger, and he thinks it's like the coolest story ever, and it really is. And Antoon gets out his gun and points it at Satchel, and then he hears his own children yelling, Daddy, in the background. So he puts his gun up just as Rabbi comes up behind him and shoots him. Puts his gun away, the rest of the world would say, outside of Tennessee. <sighs> putting your gun up means, like, putting your gun and pointing it at somebody. Puts his gun away. The interesting thing to me here, Michelle, is if you think of Antoon, Antoon's name is Antoon Dumini. Antoon Dumini. And in The Godfather, Vito's name was Vito Andolini. I know Italian names all kind of sound the same, but I found a pretty interesting, I don't know, it's not quite alliteration, but there's symmetry to those two names. He came here with nothing. He was starving to death. He had to make his way past being starved, and he saw what bounty America had, and he made him, made himself successful. You know, he's a criminal. You know, he's got a family and a house and a wife and kids. And he's, it's the story of America. That thread is pretty strong in all of this. You know, I really, that's why I like this little saga of Antoon. It was very abbreviated because he, we saw him for what, eight minutes? But I just liked it. I like the story of America thread that they're stitching into this. Well, and it's kind of like the one we heard from Calamita too, the baby in the box and how he was a scrapper and how hard he had it. So it's kind of like the same thing, only we got a little bit more of it, I think, with Antoon. But Rabbi tells um, Satchel not to look away because Satchel wants to look away. Satchel's like, is he dead? And he says, don't look away. This is what men do. It's war. And then he says, you're not safe here and you're not safe at home. And he tells them that they made him a child soldier, and that's not going to happen to Satchel. They're going to find a quiet place, wait for the dust to settle, and then if he wants to go home, Rabbi will take him home. And Satchel says he's scared, and Rabbi says he is too. Yeah, so Michelle, you're a mom. Does telling when a child says they're scared and you saying, yeah, I'm scared too, does that help the child or does that make it worse? I think it depends on the age, you well, know. And, satchel's and, a, we're talking about satchel, and maybe the child too. I think it's okay to let kids know when they get to be a little bit older. Yeah, this is a scary situation, and I feel fear too. But we're going to get through it together. I think that's okay. Yeah, hmm. that's my parenting. I, style. I would have guessed the. I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But I would have guessed. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. Even if you're kind of falsely bravo have false bravado about it like i'll take away don't you worry about that i'll you know let me take care of that satchel's pretty little he's what 10 i think he's 10 i think he's supposed to be 10 yeah and i agree if if they're four or five or six or whatever i agree you also have to think though that this is 1950 and i think that they treated boys more like men at younger ages back then and also um Look at everything he's been through. So I think it was fair for Rabbi to say that, that he's scared too, but he's going to do what he can do to keep him safe. I think it's interesting too, because we have the, I think we have the bookends of Satchel, because I'm pretty strongly believing that he's Mike Milligan. So we see Mike Milligan was a pretty confident, essentially 
good gangster. You know, he's good at being a gangster. And I think that's Satchel. So whatever rabbi imparted upon him that Milligan learned, he got from part of this time he spent with rabbi. So I think it's interesting. I, I don't think they're going to waste that. I don't think Mike Milligan's just a separate guy. I think Satchel becomes Mike Milligan and gets right back into the crime business. So you don't think then that Satchel's going to go back home? I don't think he's going to go back home permanently. I, you know, who knows? I, I kind of think the whole Italians and Canon families are going to wipe each other out. Satchel will be in the wind somewhere. He's Jesse, you know. He's in the wind somewhere, and eventually he becomes Mike Milligan, who I think is working for the either the New York crime family or the Kansas City. I can't remember one or the other. Um, but, yeah, I think he's Mike Milligan. It's interesting to see that all of this led up to him becoming Mike Milligan is pretty is a pretty interesting thread. Well, it would be kind of funny if he weren't Mike Milligan consider that it's Rabbi Milligan who's saved him and then you know and Rabbi Milligan is white and Mike Milligan is black and younger I don't know it would be quite the coincidence right if the, if he wasn't Satchel yes too much of a coincidence yeah. I think so I mean you know but what do I know? And and the timeline fits and everything. But then we see them driving away. So they're going away. They're going to hide out. And we hear the gout man groaning in the background. And then we go back to the hospital. The groaning stops. We hear like a grunt. And then Orietta Mayflower comes out of the room with a horrible smile on her face. Yeah, she exults. She's got another job done. Another one in the books. She does. And then we fade to black. That's the end of this episode. All right, Michelle, next week is 407 Layaway. If you want to reach me before 407, you can reach me at Scathing Tweets. What about you? Um, I am at Michelle from TN. All right, Michelle, we'll see you next week on Layaway. Okay, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.